this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is Mutual. The following audio drama is rated G for general audience. Welcome back to Mutual Presents. I'm Jack Ward for June 27th, and I'm standing here on the Sonic Summerstock Playhouse stage giving last-minute checks before we begin our Summerstock season this next week. So many amazing old-time radio shows use live theater as their vehicle to provide stories. In fact, I've listed the sources of the modern audio drama movement as stage, old-time radio, of course, movies and television, and most recently, YouTube confessionals as the main four sources that people use to format their storytelling in the audio dramatic format. As you know, Mutual Presents gives a peek into our Mutual Audio Network YouTube that drops classic old-time radio shows from our spiritual forefather, the Mutual Broadcasting System. And in honor of Summerstock Playhouse, here's what you can listen to every Sunday on the YouTube channel. Mutual Radio Theatre. This week we present a double feature beginning with Canadian legend Lauren Green as host for The Storekeeper. And Our Man on Omega is hosted by Andy Griffith. So wind back your clocks as we proudly present Mutual Radio Theatre from our Sunday Showcase Presents lineup on the Mutual Audio Network. Enjoy! This is Lauren Green. We're going back now to the Old West, to a time and place where life was simpler, more honest, and certainly more violent. Where men and women were always what they seemed to be, except at certain times and in certain places. And that's the story you're about to hear. A story of a man who really might not have been what he seemed. A man who felt himself to be outside the law and who finally had to make a terrible decision. Now let me introduce you to our storyteller, the Reverend Thomas Haller, a hard, gray, little man of God and former cavalryman, a minister well suited to the needs of his frontier flock. It was a warm April morning in 1879 when Bill Miller showed us his true colors. Picture him now in his general store on Main Street, sweating a bit in spite of the mildness of the day. A small boy named Jason had just returned from delivering the latest order of groceries and rubs on his sleeve the bright new copper penny he has earned. Bill Miller is tired and bored. His last customers, a pair of churchly ladies, poked their noses through his finest yards of Belgian lace for nearly an hour then went away declaring none of it fit for purchase. Ah, 
But here are two new customers. Yeah, storekeep. We want to look at your dresses. Yeah, we want to look at your dresses. Well, I think you gents come to the wrong place. The Tin Dipper's right next door, as fine a saloon as ever served three-day-old rot gut. And so they looked each other over. The middle-aged storekeeper in the loose white apron and string tie. And two easy-moving men with rim-rolled stetsons low over wide, dark, staring eyes. Miller's heart was beating very fast, as it always did when he'd faced a real hard case or two. But on this soft-spoken April morning, something new entered the equation. These two hard cases were in for a surprise themselves. For they've just met a storekeeper who's just a little bit more than they'd ever met before. And that's only the beginning of our story. Mutual Radio Theater, a new adventure in radio listening. Five nights of exceptional entertainment every week, brought to you in Elliot Lewis's production of the Mutual Radio Theater. Our story, The Storekeeper, by John Allen. Our stars, John Larch, Keith Andes, Mary Jane Croft, and Vic Perrin. We are back in Bill Miller's general store at what one might call the moment of truth, although they would laugh at that phrase in a western town of the 1870s. As the Reverend Haller tells us, Two men face the third, the storekeeper, and he makes a guess that really isn't a guess. I think you gents want what's in the cash drawer. Well, listen now. He reads our mind. <laughs> okay, mind reader, just open up the till. Here, let me help you. Really hate to have you take it. Worked awful hard for them few dollars. Well, look at the trouble we're saving you taking it to the bank. Get it, Bob. You boys are making a mistake. Under the apron. He had a belly gun. I, I, I never seen it so fast. Jason, boy, go for the marshal and the doctor. Here, here, take these guns and lay them outside the door where the marshal can pick them up. I told you, boys. Now you just slide down there and rest easy till the sawbones comes. Marshal Blodgett restored the peace Though he had very little to do at that point He invited storekeeper Miller down to his office at the jail for a little talk I was a witness to their conversation For I'd been tasting the marshal's bitter coffee that soft April morning The boy, Jason, had just stammered out his story of the shooting to the marshal And had been excused with another bright copper penny Promising to go home and tell his mama all about it. And he surely will tell her, too. Be all over town by noon. Well, Mr. Miller, you did shoot two men just now. You'd expect it wouldn't be all over town? Well, I guess. You ever see those two before? Nope. Little Walt Besser and Bob Morgan. Two curly wolves, if ever I seen them. How did they make your acquaintance, sir? Well, they just come in the store and went for the money. I asked him not to. Would have given him a dollar each for a bath and a few beers that asked me. But much to your surprise, they didn't ask. Nope. No curly wolves, like you call them. They, they never do. They never do. And so? Mm, so, well, they 
went for the cash drawer, and I slammed it on the tall one's hand and went for the belly gun. Never noticed you carried a weapon. <laughs> well, uh, under the apron with, with my beer belly and all, you don't really see it. Yeah, I see it now? Oh, sure. Here. <clears throat> don't see many of these short-barreled Colts. How many times you fire it? In the store? Well, two was all it took. Lucky I was close to them. Chance to aim. For the shoulder. You worry me, Mr. Miller. You're just a touch too good with a revolver for a common storekeeper. Gunfighters make me nervous. <laughs> me too, Marshal. Uh, could I have a cup of that coffee? Oh, sure. Here you are, Mr. Miller. Uh, drink slowly. It'll take the skin off your bones. Mr. Miller, where do you hail from? Maslon, Ohio. I know that town. And where were you before you came here? Um, too many questions, Marshal. Don't like to talk about it. That store won't do too well if you're spending the day in my jail. Hmm. I guess not. All right. I drifted around. After the war, I punched cows up in Kansas. Worked on the railroad out of Abilene. Drove a freight wagon. Went back home. Got a stake from a dad. Came out and bought old Benson's store. You know the rest. You do look familiar. You ever wear a beard? No, sir. Been clean shaved all my life. Serving the war? Yes, sir. Oh, Ohio Cavalry Unit. And so did I, sir. What was your regiment? Oh, not too long ago. Don't remember. Marshal, can I go now? I guess so. Jason Boy tells the truth most of the time, and from his story, you was pushed. Those two curly wolves that pushed you do have a certain stink around these parts. Quite up to doing what you said they did. Here, Miller, your short colts. It'll need cleaning. Yeah, thank you, sir. It surely will. Don't use it again, Miller. Not in my territory. Oh, hope not ever to have to use it again anywhere, Marshal. You believe him? The shooting? Yes. He saved me some trouble with those two badens. There's something familiar about him. Can't get a hold of it. Well, I'll tell you something familiar, Reverend. I know a gunfighter when I see one. One good thing, when this story gets around, his cash drawer is going to be safe as a church. <laughs> Safer than my church. <laughs> Marshal, you seem very nervous these past few days. I didn't know it showed. What would you say if I was to tell you we're going to have a shipment of gold in this town in the next few days that'll pop your eyes right out of your head? Well, I'd say that I have to go now and ring the bells for vespers. But tonight, well, I usually start to write my Sunday sermon. But if you want to come over tonight and talk about a shipment of gold that'll make my eyes pop, why, the sermon can always wait a while. In the cool of an April evening, as he worked on his next Sunday's sermon, Reverend Haller welcomes his friend, Marshal Blodgett, in the study of his modest church. I've been sort of nervous lately, as you remarked earlier. Something big coming up. That golden egg mine. The old shaft up there behind Buttercup Mountain? Yes, sir. Nobody knows it yet, but the golden egg is played out. 
mine manager, sassy old cuss named McGraw. He sent me a message a month ago. Vein's played out. No more gold. He's letting go them 15 miners he's got up there. Going to give him double the last month's wages and what he calls severance pay. Mm. Conscience money, I expect. And that's my problem. A lot of money when you lump it together. So much that it's risky to make the payoff up at the mine. Too easy for somebody to slide in there and steal that payroll. Yeah, probably three, four thousand dollars. <laughs> You're close. Anyhow, McGraw's going to have the payoff down here tomorrow at the bank. Cash is coming in tonight by stage, all in gold. McGraw don't hold with paper money. Nor do many people around these parts. That much gold draws baddens like flies to honey. I do figure we may have company. You know something? Well, been checking around. Spent a month's pay on telegrams. Got every wanted poster in three states lying on my desk right now. Uh, and where do you come out? Mm, best odds to hit us is an outfit called the Mason Gang. Very smooth fellas. Always scout it out first and keep their numbers small as they can. I think I heard a song about the Masons once. Mm. Let's see, how did it go? Uh, uh, one for the front door, one for the back, and one to get the money in the old gunny sack. And one to hold the horses. Yep, they do banks that way, just the four of them. Well, but they could be anywhere in a thousand miles. What says they'll come here? Just that funny feeling you get in this business. You've been around long enough. And one thing they're noted for, have it from the sheriff at Medville, old Lonnie Sims, they hit a bank on him there last spring. Lonnie says, watch for their scout. Guy comes into town weeks ahead, sets himself up as a businessman, so as to look the place over. I still don't see why you connect the Mason gang to this. Old Lonnie Sims says their scout sometimes sets himself up as a storekeeper. Let me introduce you now to two new friends on a picnic. Bill Miller, the storekeeper, has driven Elizabeth Slater, the schoolteacher, out to a cool and piney glade high on a granite cliff above the town of Eagle Ridge. See a long way from here. Oh, you certainly can. I brought cold chicken and a bottle of wine. Wine? Where the heck did you get wine out here? Oh, they freighted in for me. <laughs> school teacher with a wine cellar. How do you buy wine on $10 a month, school teacher? I am of independent <clears throat> means, Mr. Miller. Isn't that why you're courting me? <laughs> no, it's because you're a, a beautiful lady in a land where the beautiful ain't ladies and vice versa. And you laugh easy. And you have a sparkle like the moon on the river. And I do cook very good chicken. Yes, you do. Yeah, and I'll take a drumstick. Um, as soon as you've tried your luck with this wine cork. And later, Bill Miller lay with his head in Miss Slater's lap and looked up. And knew pine trees had never been so beautiful. She leaned aside to escape the smoke of his Mexican cigar and asked him a question. Who are you, really? Bill Miller, storekeeper. Yes, and I'm a refugee princess from Imperial China. <laughs> oh, really? You're somebody else, Bill Miller. You... Walk kind of carefully, and you have a way of using your eyes when you come into a room. That's not like any storekeeper I ever saw. 
You've got big, soft hands that haven't really lifted store boxes and bales in years. Mm, what does all that mean? Well, I'm attracted to you. But I don't know if I want to be around any man very long when I don't know who he really is. I wonder about you too, Elizabeth Slater. School teacher who lives by herself in a big house, drives match Morgan trotting horses to her $100 rig, keeps a wine cellar, and freezes the men who come courting her with a stare as sharp as a January icicle. I didn't freeze you, did I? No, but you, <laughs> you made me push those school kids of yours in that tree swing almost an hour before you came out to thank me. <laughs> You looked so funny, pushing the swing and twisting your head to try to see me through the window. You didn't look quite comfortable. And school teacher doesn't seem quite comfortable for you, Elizabeth Slater. Oh, it's a way to live. Gives one peace, everything but money. But I have enough of that. And no inheritance either. I made it myself. Hmm. Honesty becomes you, Miss Slater. Especially when it might get you in trouble if it was to be spread around. Let's just say that a long time ago in San Francisco, there was a girl who ran a mm, boarding house, and she was very good at it, made lots of money. But she learned to hate it. And one day she just got up the nerve to sell the boarding house, to come back to the mountains, teach school, because her mother taught school. She always loved her mother. Oh, you see this, Mr. Storekeeper or somebody else. I'll use this on you some dark night if you ever repeat a word of what I've said. Put that little pistol away, please. Sorry. So am I. You can trust me without a gun, Elizabeth Slater. Now, I'll ask you to pour me some more of that clear white wine that's stronger than it looks. Chablis, Mr. Miller. Oh, thank you. Chablis. And now, let me tell you about a man I know. Farm kid from Ohio. Went with the cavalry to Shiloh and some other places. Learned to like shooting. Found out he was really good at it. But learned also that it's a little easier to talk your way to what you want than to shoot for it. Hmm. He got bent. This boy did bent real crooked. And he couldn't blame bad company or whatever. He just... Like the easy way of things outside the law. Like what? Well, like helping banks figure out what to do with their money. <laughs> I heard a little rhyme about a man like that. One for the front door, one for the back. One to put the money in an old gunny sack. Where'd you hear that? One of the children came to school singing it. A harmless little tune about a robber gang called the Masons. Yeah, there's another line. And one to hold the horses. You've always got to have somebody hold the horses. You know how bank robbers work, Mr. Miller? Uh, well, no. We we had to have horse holders in the cavalry, you see, whenever we fought dismounted. Oh, of course. Ah, why is it? Why do I have such bad luck with men? Here I've met this very interesting man, and now I'm afraid he'll be shot for a bank robber. Look, Elizabeth the Beautiful, pour us the last of that wine... And believe me when I tell you I'm just a plain old storekeeper. You don't talk like a storekeeper. You don't shoot like a storekeeper. Bet you don't even kiss like a storekeeper. Mm, worse luck if I did. Here, madam. You may judge for yourself. 
As a storekeeper and a teacher tried to untangle each other's identities, but decided to fall in love instead, a worried little Scotsman visited the marshal in his office far below the picnic pines. The owner of the Golden Egg Mine, Angus McGraw, tried to fence off his fear and tension with bluster, but it didn't really work. Angus McGraw, the Golden Egg. I know you. None of your damn jokes about how we're all out of golden eggs. I didn't name the godforsaken mine. I'd let them call it anything they wanted if my uncle willed me a gold mine. I'll take none of your lip, Sheriff. Marshal, please. No sheriff here. I'm deputy marshal for this territory, Mr. McGraw. And if you insist on raising your voice to me, I shall have you take your chair and sit out in the street. I am worth a million dollars, sir. I've never thrown a man worth a million dollars out of my office. But there's always a first time. Marshal, I'm scared as hell. You've heard the rumors about the gang? Well, yes, the Mason gang I've been hearing about, but only rumors. Where are all your armed guards to cover the payoff tomorrow? I wrote you that I'd pay for up to 20 rifles. My lord... We're up against the slickest gang of bank robbers west of the Mississippi. Now, Mr. McGraw, no one even knows if the Masons are within a thousand miles. And even if they are, they only come to four men. We are not fighting the massed armies of Emperor Napoleon. Well, the payout starts at noon tomorrow. My miners and their families will all be here. I don't feel too good about losing their jobs in the first place. When they find out the payroll's been McGraw, stole... McGraw, the payroll ain't gonna be stole. Now, why don't you just get the hell out of here and come back when your money stage rolls in tonight? After Angus McGraw, the manager of the played-out mine, slammed out of his office, Marshal Blodgett had a feeling of uneasiness, and he certainly wouldn't have felt any better if he'd been at the town's bank at that moment. Storekeeper Miller was making a deposit and taking his time about it. Here you are, Teller. $18.32. Oh, I'll take a receipt, thank you. <laughs> Not much to show for a week's work. Yeah, thank you, sir. And here's your receipt. Uh, Mr. Miller, sir. I said, here's your receipt. Huh? Oh, yeah. Say, nice, cozy little bank you got here. Just the one front door. Suppose you have a back door, too. Oh, yes, sir, back there. You have to go through the manager's office to get to it. <laughs> he likes to see who comes in and out the back way, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and your accounting room? Don't have one. Any big shipments come in, see? We just use the manager's office there. Ah. I think that would make it easy for a, a bank robber just to slip in by the back and take what he wanted if he knew they was working there. No, sir, not that easy. It's double locked, and we keep a 12-gauge by the door to uh, answer any knocks we don't expect. Ah, <laughs> yes, I, I think that would do the job. Well, thank you, Teller. I wish you a good day now. Well, it'll be a long one for sure. Got to come back after supper and help count something special. Be a long night. Yes. Yeah, I expect it will. Good day to you. And Marshal Blodgett 
would have been even more uneasy had I been able to see into a clump of pines high on the canyon rim about seven miles east of the town. Well back in those pines were tied three big gaunt horses, the kind of stringy hammerheads favored by frontier cavalry. And sitting beside a very small fire, sipping coffee out of battered army mess cups were three tired and edgy men, bearded, heavily armed. One glanced at a battered pocket watch slid from a greasy leather vest and then nodded. The fire was doused with the last of the bit of coffee, and the men slouched to their horses, tightened saddle cinches, slid short rifles into scabbards, and mounted up. They rode their horses out to the canyon's flinty lip, sat there huddled in their faded blue army tunics against the cooling twilight wind. One man lifted a battered spyglass to his eye, watched a plume of brown dust swirl down the road far below. Soon all three could see the dusty brown stagecoach trailed by no less than seven men, each with a long gun across his saddle horn. The three men high on the granite cliff smiled at each other, the lip-drawing smile of the curly wolf, for such they were. And then three of the four members of the notorious mason gang turned and picked their way slowly down the cliffs, down a trail that would bring them to the dusty road a comfortable mile or so behind that galloping stagecoach and its heavy pine boxes of gold coins for which they had plans that night. The marshal and I took our supper that night at Elder Bennett's boarding house, as we usually do Thursdays. The marshal and I have often discussed how Mrs. Elder Bennett can take good steaks from well-fed steers and turn them into thick brown boards that'll separate your teeth from your gums. But we agree that the only thing less to be desired is to eat our own cooking all the time. Well, we were joined at supper that night by storekeeper Miller. The marshal saw him passing on the street and pressed the invitation. Our conversation over the first cup of coffee was somewhat strained. Well, uh, thank you, gentlemen, for inviting me to sup with you. Say, Reverend Haller, pardon my remarking it, but are you carrying iron tonight? Uh, well, well yeah, yes, I am. I, uh, <laughs> since I am found out, I shall take this old war souvenir out of my belt where it's been bruising my stomach and lay it on my lap. Uh, much better. A little strange, ain't it? Ministers supposed to wear Bibles in their holsters, not a, <laughs> a Colt's Dragoon. Oh, you're right, of course, Mr. Miller. But uh, later on tonight, I intend being in a place uh, out of curiosity where I may need to protect myself. The bank, you see, has... Reverend a... Haller... Well, even a moonlight walk in these parts requires a precaution or two. That old horse pistol looks well used. Mm. Well, it's, it's time it was, sir. Though I, I must register the fact that it has not been used since I took the cloth. Oh, war service, sir? Oh, I had the honor to serve in the 5th Ohio Cavalry. Did you now? And suddenly it burst upon me. This middle-aged, clean-shaven storekeeper. I knew where I'd seen him before. And I wanted to shout a welcome to an old comrade on arms, but, but something cautioned me, held me back. The 5th Ohio Cavalry, you say? Gentlemen, I see that Mrs. Elder Bennett is still frying those poor steaks long after they're done, so let me take a moment for a tale from the war. A tale that may interest you especially, Mr. Miller. We were at Shiloh in a nasty little tangle that shortly became a nasty big tangle. 
I rode with my colonel down to Pittsburgh Landing to get new orders from that hard little man, Grant. And we found him by the stink of his cigars, even in the dark. And on the way back, we got lost, miserably lost. We blundered into a rebel picket, and my colonel was shot and dragged into a creek by his horse. I took a ball in the shoulder and went down, too, but managed to clear my stirrups. Well, just then, four men on horses came flying through the creek at a gallop, spraying water and revolver shots like a Fourth of July celebration. They bounced me and my colonel up behind their saddles and galloped us back to our line. Oh, uh, thank you, Mrs. Bennett. Now, the young corporal who rescued us was a boy named Bob Mason, possessing a fine, full beard despite his tender years, and he and the three who rode with him were inseparable, served out the war, then told us they were going west together. Now, word has it that they found it easier to live by robbing banks than by honest work, and they took the corporal's name as their name, the Mason Gang. You tell a good war story, Reverend. It does not ring a bell of memory? None at all. My Lord, this state... And I suppose you never wore a full beard, sir? Nope. And you never served with the 5th Ohio Cavalry at Shiloh? I don't remember my regiment, Reverend. And you're spoiling my dinner with your questions. Men make very close associations with the units with which they serve in the war, Mr. Miller. I find it passing strange that your memory is so poor... Your collar prevents me from saying what I should like to say just now, sir. Gentlemen! For a few moments that evening, death was the fourth companion at our supper table. The storekeeper's hand was just inside his coat where it might rest easily on the butt of the short-barreled revolver he had used with such recent skill. I let my eyes roll slightly toward the marshal, saw his thumb slide the thong off the hammer spur of his revolver, and I must confess something against which I was to pray forgiveness for many a night. My own hand was about my revolver, the hammer coming back under my thumb. Then, Miller's elbow hit the table. Well, <laughs> there, I've, I've lost mistake. Well, gentlemen, I've other business this evening. Would you excuse me now and pay Mrs. Bennett for me when you pay your own? Marshal, Reverend, good night. Green again, and here's the fourth act of The Storekeeper. The next chapter of that memorable evening in our raw little town occurred at the gabled mansion of our so-called teacher, Miss Slater. I heard about it much later from the lady herself. Evening, Elizabeth. Why, Mr. Miller, Bill, it's late, but come in. Yeah, I can't, I can't, but I need, I need to talk. Can you come out on the porch and sit with me a minute? If you want. I've got a shawl right here. Oh, good, good. Why don't we sit here on the swing? You're awfully nervous. Yeah, I am. I can't tell you why either. just wanted to see you again before I go. Oh, you're leaving? I'm so sorry. Now, don't go and get that schoolmarm's tone to your voice. I don't need it. Yes, I have to go one way or the other. I'm not sure which. Sounds like a melodrama. Our hero has come to a fork in the road. Yes, damn it, I have, and it's driving me crazy. And it doesn't include me? Bill Miller, I have some rights in your decision, too. We love each other. 
least we say we do. I want us to be together. After the knocks we've had, we deserve a chance at something good. They know who I am. That day on the picnic, that was the truth I told you. I'm Bob Mason, and tonight we're going to take that mine payroll. Or we were... I don't want to know what you're going to do tonight. Don't tell me. Uh, too many things against it. I know these people too well in this half-dead town. For the first time in my life, I want to be a storekeeper. Bring people things they need and make a little money at it, too. They know who I am, that marshal, and, and the minister had me cornered in the boarding house tonight eating supper. The minister... I saved him once at Shiloh. He remembers me. They had you cornered, a sleepy old marshal and a man of God? Mm, you bet your pretty face they did. Oh, I know a shooting situation when I see it. That sleepy old marshal was half drawed out of his holster. And your man of God had an old Colts dragoon right up on full cock, and he really wanted to use it. But you're really not running from them. <laughs> nope. You know, when my when my three friends come in, I can take that mine payroll slick as a whistle. They have a back door to the counting room. We can just blow down easy, be in and out before the dust settles. But you're not going to. Well, I'd like to be not going to, but my three curly wolves, they don't take no for an answer, not even from me. Yeah, maybe the easiest thing is just to do it and get the hell out of here. Could you do it without shooting? Could you do it without shooting, Mr. Mason? I heard you. And you know the answer. Good night. I don't know what you're going to do tonight, but I hope I see you again sometime. Now, I'm going to go and get a bottle of very good wine, drink it all very slowly, because I won't be able to sleep tonight. And I hope we both see the sun come up tomorrow. I sat with the marshal. And then the manager's cramped little shoebox of an office in the bank that night. Watched the tired teller slide shiny gold coins out of sacks taken from the thick pine boxes. Piled them on the table. And count them into the smaller bags that would go to McGraw's miners in the morning. Uh, Marshal, it's, uh, it's ten o'clock. I have to go. I didn't expect you to stay this long. But gold makes a man want to stay and watch, don't it? Yeah, I'll see more of it tonight than I may see the rest of my life. <laughs> Oh, you understand. I have to go. I don't need you. Yes, but but you're all alone. Not quite. Spent some of McGraw's money, hired four of them guards that come in with the money stage tonight. But I saw them all leave with the coach. You surely did. But you didn't see them come back in after dark. Two in the livery stable in the alley where they can cover the back door. Two more sitting on the porch across the street. So you've got some help. <laughs> well, I, I'd wish you a good night's sleep, but that'd be the worst thing that could happen, falling asleep. No, no sleep tonight. Not till after that money goes to the miners tomorrow. I didn't sleep much that night either. But instead climbed the rickety ladder to the bell tower of my church with my old spyglass to see a sight I shall never forget. At a little past midnight... A full moon popped up over the shoulder of the eastern mountains. And down the eastern trail, with the moon at their backs, came three men, cantering along almost without a sound, on horses whose hooves must have been wrapped in gunny sacks. 
I was sure it was the rest of the Mason gang. I raised my old revolver to fire three warning shots, but uh, held back. I saw a single figure break from the brush at the edge of the town and ride hard toward the men coming in. And they stopped, talked. Then all four turned and went back east along the trail, walking their horses slowly as though they were talking together. And suddenly, the talking ended. I hope you never have to see the Colt's revolver fired at night. But if you do, you will remark how bright the muzzle flashes can be, how they can light up the sudden violence of jumping, frightened horses as three tired and angry men attempt to kill a fourth. And then the shots fade into the mountains, and the distant running horses' sounds flutter off into the silver night as though you never saw a thing at all. I propped myself in the church belfry and stared at the moonrise until at last the glow of the coming sun profiled the mountains and then climbed down my ladder and went to bed. That morning, the miners got their pay and a happy Angus McGraw gave the marshal a bonus, almost large enough to cover all the money he had spent on telegrams about the Mason gang. But that was not the end of it. Oh, no, not quite. For there remained the question of what had happened to our storekeeper, the man who had done the right thing in spite of himself and his three violent friends. What had happened to Bill Miller? The marshal and I had our answer a few weeks later. Marshall and I had the end of our story and the beginning of a new one. As we watched the stage prepare for departure one morning, three weeks later. Miss Slater, you're leaving us? Yes, Marshall. Good morning, Reverend. Yes, Mrs. Quackenbush will teach the children for the rest of the term. Oh, might I ask your uh, destination? I'm going back to San Francisco. Oh, then you better get in. Old Charlie's looking at his watch. (laughs) Well, I'm so happy. Old Charlie will just have to hold his stage for another minute while I tell you something. If you swear on the Bible... Oh, I do that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I meant no offense. No, I just thought you two might like to know that I'm going to visit a very special friend. A letter came three days ago. My friend had a bad accident while hunting, shot himself, and he was near death for a time, but he's much recovered now. I am going to nurse him back to health, then assist him in a new business venture. Uh, you'll be running a general store, no doubt. hmm? You must know my friend. Goodbye. We handed the beautiful lady up to her seat in the coach and saw old Charlie raise his whip to the horses. But the marshal gestured at the driver and leaned to Miss Slater at the window. As you restore his health, please try to break his bad habits, Miss Slater. Like wearing a Colt's revolver under his apron. (laughs) Oh, my, yes, Marshal. But we've already broken him of one bad habit, haven't we? Mm. The others will just have to take time. Reverend, come along to the tin cup. We'll have a little something to toast the Mason gang and a man who made sure they never came to visit us. How did that little song go? One for the front door, one for the back, 
and one to get the money in an old gunny sack. And one to hold the horses. The Mutual Radio Theater is brought to you five nights a week at this time. Tonight's original radio play, The Storekeeper, was written by John Allen and produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Your host was Lauren Green. Our stars were John Lark, Keith Andes, Mary Jane Croft, and Vic Perrin. Featured in the cast were Tyler McVeigh and Jack Manning. The Mutual Radio Theater theme was composed by Nelson Riddle. John Harlan speaking. The Elliott Lewis production of Mutual Radio Theater is a presentation of CVI. This is Andy Griffith. Join us tomorrow at the same time. I've got another story I think you'll find riotously amusing. This is Andy Griffith. A crowd is gathering at a place of fields and rolling hills somewhere in Pennsylvania. On a platform which has been set up at the far end of the area are giant television screens, radar receivers, placed to sweep the heavens. In a moment, a man steps to a microphone. The crowd quiets expectantly. The man clears his throat. <clears> and he speaks. Today, on the 52nd anniversary of Ned Bummer's exodus from Earth, we are gathered to pay our respects to the first man who positively established that we are coming and going at the same time. Long ago, before Ned Bummer, we believed the limiting factor in our exploration of the universe was the speed of light. It's hard to believe, I know, but we used to think of the speed of light was as fast as you could go. Imagine, 186,000 miles a second was it. Now, of course, it's whiz and away we go, darting through interstellar space, hither and yon to the very extremes of this little old universe of ours. Well, it was Ned Bummer who made that possible. It was Ned Bummer who made that first leap into the future, dragging the rest of us behind him. Ned Bummer, out there in the universe ready to chat with us on this historic day. And that's only the beginning of Ned Bummer's story.
Mutual Radio Theater, a new adventure in radio listening. Five nights of exceptional entertainment every week, brought to you in Elliot Lewis's production of the Mutual Radio Theater. Our story, Our Man on Omega, by Elliot Lewis. Our star, Richard Crenna. The speaker pauses to brush a tear from the corner of his eye as he remembers Ned Bomber, that great man who did so much for the human race. The crowd expectantly waits. Overhead, a clear sky is empty of activity. Let me give you some background. Back in the 1980s at Green Bank, an experiment called Project Ozma 3 was set in motion. Very simply, what it did was send out a series of radio signals aimed in all sorts of directions to try and locate intelligent life on other planets. The signals were simple mathematical equations, so adroitly designed that any simpleton in the universe could deduce from them what our intelligent life on Earth was all about. One plus one equals two, and so forth. According to the calculations then accepted, it would take 12 years for the message to get to the nearest possibly inhabited planet, and then a few days for the folks there to try to figure it out, and then 12 years for a reply. This, of course, was based on the premise that nothing travels faster than light. Since it would take 24 years, give or take a day or two, before an answer could be expected, although the machinery had been installed, it was not yet activated. Ned Bummer, as you know, was a computer repair and maintenance technician, and the computers up at Greenbank were his charges. The day Ned Bummer made his discovery was the greatest all-time day in the history of the universe. You recall, he was the first one who believed we were coming and going at the same time. Well, on this great all-time day that I'm talking about, Ned Bummer was at Green Bank, and what he was doing was connecting all that equipment that was scanning the universe, sending out signals, because Ned Bummer didn't believe it would take 24 years for an answer. And sure enough, when the receiving equipment was connected, Ned Bummer became the first person in the history of planet Earth to hear the voice of someone from somewhere besides here. Ned very distinctly heard the voice of a feminine being. And this is what she said. Hello, Earth. Hello, Earth. Hello, Earth. What is this, a joke? Do you want to talk to us, or is this a put-on? Quick as a flash, Ned grabbed the microphone, and his voice replaced the pattern of signals. In perfect control, in that contained way of his, he spoke to a being from somewhere else. This is planet Earth. This is planet Earth. Hi. Well, at last. I've been saying hello, planet Earth, until my throat got sore. What's going on? It's too complicated to explain. Uh, to whom am I speaking? Norma K. Vicky, And you are? Bummer. Ned Bummer. Planet Earth. I just knew it had to be Earth because of these wild messages we've been getting telling us one and one is two and two and two is four and so forth. That's some dumb, intelligent life you have over there. <laughs> Forgive us. Uh, tell me, from where are you speaking? The headquarters building. No, I mean, I'm on Earth. Where are you? Oh, I see what you mean. I'm on First. I think you call it Alpha Omega. Alpha Omega? First, it's called. First up, first you go forward, first you go backward. 
you mean you've been there and you're coming back? Exactly. Forward and back, forward and back. You're going, I'm returning. Later on, you'll be returning. It's the natural order of things. Am I on the right track when I deduce you speak English on Omega? We speak all the Earth languages. We learned from listening to your radio and TV. We saw it and heard it before. And now that we're coming back, we're getting the reruns. Television, you said. Did you have television? Do we have television? You betcha. Why? I thought, if you have the time, I thought I'd put a TV connector relay on this channel. And as we're talking, we could also see one another. Well, that would be very nice. We, uh... Yes? Well, uh, we don't look like you, you know. Oh, that's all right. Uh, just give me a minute. Ned Bummer hurriedly connected a small television receiver to the transmitting and receiving equipment. And then he leaned eagerly forward, prepared to be the first person on the planet Earth to see a being from somewhere else. What a moment, huh? Ned Bummer sitting there in front of that television receiver, ready to get an Earth person's first look at someone from somewhere else. Now that's drama. While the sets were warming up, Ned engaged Norma K. Vicky in conversation. By the way, is it Ms. Vicky or, or perhaps Miss Vicky or Mrs. Vicky? None of the above. We gave that up. Oh, of course. And you? Since you're still going forward, is it Mr. Bummer or Mrs. Bummer? Mr. Bummer. Of course. Oh, my, is that you? You see me? I think it's you. Are you moving your right hand up and down? Yes, I'm waving. You're waving. My goodness, think of it. Waving. Uh, how do I look? Is the picture sharp? I could reach out and touch you with how real you look. You want to see me? Oh, yes, I'd be honored. I'm between channels two and four. Channel three. Three? Uh, here it would be eleven. Think of Ned Bummer's self-control at that moment. The slightest raise of an eyebrow, the tiniest gaping of the mouth, any outward sign of surprise would certainly be offensive to Norma K. Vicky and might indeed jeopardize Earth's relationship with other beings on other planets for all time to come. But let Ned Bummer describe it as he wrote it in his diary. The instant Norma K. Vicky told me what channel she was on, I felt my stomach tense in anticipation. I literally froze my face into an appealing, warm, and friendly look so as not to betray my emotions when I first saw her. I leaned forward in my chair and switched to channel three and adjusted the focus until it was clear and sharp. What I saw was a being with little or no waist, her bust and hips squared off and of equal projection from her torso. Her arms and legs were perfectly matched lengthwise and were capable of being placed all four on the ground or raised in either alternate or catty corner pairs. The upper third of her body was gently sloped front to back and within this area were Norma K. Vicky's eyes and her wide, generous mouth, which opened in an entrancing way without being sexy. Attached to her lower lip was what at first appeared to be a handle, although I quickly judged it to be an odor sensor. In fact, Norma K. Vicky was the exact duplicate of what we used to call a corner mailbox. Well, what do you think? Are you surprised at how I look? Uh, not a bit. Not one little bit. I told you we don't look like you, you know. Well, as a matter of fact, you don't. 
You noticed the difference? Yes, I did. Because you've seen some of us before? Well... You're the contact, right? Contact? Can you be trusted? Absolutely. Do you remember, before you and I had these conversations, when you folks were sending us those wild messages, one and one is two and so forth? Oh, I remember it well. When we received those messages, we were worried about you. I mean to say, there I was responding to your stupid messages, no offense to present company, and no one over there was responding to my response. Yes, yes? We thought maybe you were sick or had destroyed yourself. So we sent an expeditionary force of 27 of our finest to see what was wrong. You mean... There are 27 Omega sites among you there on Earth. But where? They're... What are they doing? They're disguised. The last I heard, they were in your Des Moines, in New Iowa. They'd gotten hold of some red and blue and white coloring matter and disguised themselves. We haven't heard from them since they put on the disguise. Do you suppose they're lost? Did something terrible happen to them? Is it dangerous in your Des Moines, in Iowa? Oh, I'm sure they're all right. You know how it is when you get to a new place. You go sightseeing, get caught up in the world of things, and sometimes you forget the folks at home. Yes, I suppose so. I, I wonder, uh... Yes? I hate to impose. Oh, that's all right. W would you like me to round them up? Would you? Tell me, do they look like you? Exactly like me, except they're disguised. Where I'm blue with a green cast, they're a combination of red, white, and blue. I see. I believe I know where I might find them. Would it be putting you out to ask them to get in touch? No, not at all, not at all. Well, I'm going to have to sign off now if I'm to round up your fellow Omegasites. But I'll stay in touch. Good luck. What a task Ned Bummer had set for himself. He had promised to locate 27 Omega sites, who in their red, white, and blue disguises clearly duplicated the corner mailboxes, which used to be on nearly every corner throughout the U.S. of A. Norma K. Vicky had said they'd last been heard from in Des Moines, Iowa, and that's where Ned began his search. Ned proceeded with the utmost caution, lest the word get out that 27 corner mailboxes weren't corner mailboxes, but were indeed beings from another planet. Oh, what mob hysteria would have resulted? And so, proceeding with extreme caution, only when the coast was clear would Ned Bummer approach what seemed to be a corner mailbox, but which might be a lost Omega site, and address it thusly. Hi there. I'm Ned Bummer. Norma K. Vicky sent me. Good heart that he was, when he approached a corner mailbox into which someone had just stuffed a package, Ned would quickly say, oh, Forgive us, I'm sorry, we, we didn't know. What a super humanitarian. And now, folks, we have a surprise for you. While I've been speaking, Hal, our engineer, has made contact with Alpha Omega. And at this moment, I would like to call in Ned Bummer himself to comment on his eight-month search for the missing Omega sites. Hello, Ned Bummer! Hello, Ned Bummer! Can you hear us? I can hear you, sir. You're coming in loud and strong. Ned, there are hundreds of thousands of people gathered here today to celebrate your accomplishments. Your wife, Mrs. Ned Bummer, is an honored guest. Oh, hello, old girl. We'll be together soon. Uh, she's overcome with emotion, Ned, and unable to speak. But she's waving at you, Ned. She's waving at the speaker your voice is coming from. I'm waving back, old girl. Ned, I was telling the folks about your search for the missing Omega sites. 
Would you care to comment? Thank you. That search was one of the most difficult periods of my life, sir, as you can imagine. My concern for the missing omegasites was enormous, since they were alone and friendless on an alien planet disguised as corner mailboxes. Ned, there are people here in this crowd who are openly weeping. As well they might, sir, for those omegasites were living in secrecy on street corners without a roof over their heads. I made my first contact on the outskirts of Des Moines, Iowa, near a railroad station. There I discovered Seymour Y. Kenley, a strapping young omegasite so terrified by his surroundings that at first he was unable to speak to me. Only when I placed my arm around his broad back did he break down and sob. With Seymour Y. Kenley by my side, we traversed this great nation of ours in search of the other omegasites. Oh, their condition was pitiful. Arnold D. Deems was located outside the New York Times mailroom and suffers a hernia to this day. Mm, how badly we behaved toward our first visitors from another planet. Oh, but it wasn't malicious, sir. None of it was malicious. Uh, excuse me, sir. Yes, of course, immediately. Uh, I, now I must get back to work. But before I leave, let me say one other thing. I think we all find, as we get younger, how many foolish things we did in our old age. It has been truly said that old age is wasted on the elderly. Good wishes to you all until we meet again three or four years ago. Take care, old lady. Take care, my precious. Mrs. Bummer is waving, Ned. She's sobbing and waving. We'll be together soon, old girl. And, and we'll have our honeymoon. What a great person. How modestly he glossed over that eight-month period. Not a word about his difficulties with the postal authorities and the police. Not a syllable about the week he spent in the intensive care unit of the West Cleveland Hospital for the Deranged. He did not mention the night that he and Seymour Y. Kenley found Arthur L. Flem standing on a New York street alongside Santa Claus. And glued to his neck, that terrible piece of paper, its invitation to Mayhem clearly printed... Mail early for Christmas. <laughs> Before anyone could stop him, Ned Bummer, driving a newly requisitioned ex-moving van, pulled to the curb, lifted Arthur L. Flem from the sidewalk, and as Santa Claus shouted, Stop! Stop! Ned Bummer drove quickly away with Santa Claus and a Salvation Army lassie in hot pursuit. And Lawrence W. Neek was found outside a soap company's headquarters where he was being stuffed with bubble bath samples. And Norman R. Zolly, the leader of the expedition, was found outside the foundation for Planned Parenthood, stuffed with brochures, which accounts for the minor population explosion of that year. Now, it was Ned Bummer's intent, when he'd gathered together all the Omega sites, to drive his converted moving van, in which the 27 Omega sites were being transported, to Green Bank, where he planned to let them broadcast on television to Norma K. Vicky on Omega. During his task of rounding up the Omega sites, he regularly sent postcards to his bride-to-be, Miss Eleanor Hempel, whom you all know. Let's hear it for the little lady, Eleanor Hempel, now Mrs. Ned Bummer. Take a bow, Mrs. Bummer, that's it. You there, give her a hand, help her up, but don't let her totter. That's it. All right, all right, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, these postcards Ned mailed always showed a corner mailbox, since Ned Bummer wanted to hint to his beloved as to what he was doing. 
Now he wanted to see her in person. So he made a little bit of a detour on his way to Green Bank to pay a visit to Miss Hempel. Just wait here for a moment. dreaming about going forward and back and taking a position with the post office. Oh, my darling. Post office? Now we can be married. We don't have to postpone our wedding another minute. Oh, my darling Ned. But I'm, I'm not with the post office. You're not? No. I noticed immediately that a corner mailbox was clearly in view in each picture postcard you sent me. And so I thought... Uh, those that... aren't mailboxes. Those are my friends. Who are? What looks like mailboxes. They're not. They're not mailboxes? They're omegasites. The mailboxes are omegasites? Uh, Ned, darling, I I'm afraid I'm slow-witted today. May I bring my friends into your house? Of course, my darling. Gentlemen... My fiancée, Miss Eleanor Hempel, who lives in that little white house with the picket fence, would like you to come in for a little visit. We'd be honored. My dear, may I present my friends, the Omegasites. They're from the planet Omega. How do you do? How kind of you to receive us. How do? I'd like to tell you that any friend of Ned's is a friend of mine. Won't you come in? Now, at that time, a group of volunteers had formed in the U.S. of A. who called themselves the Patriots to Keep the Mails Clean. The PKMC encouraged self-righteous acts of vigilance on the part of its members, who were dedicated to removing from the mails any material they considered decadent, salacious, or obscenely offensive. Their most prominent enemy were those who mailed things in plain brown wrappers. The PKMC would confiscate such material and burn it, tearing open corner mailboxes in order to do this. They would then leave the mailboxes in empty fields for the postal officials to find and repair. Well, you might not believe this, but in one of those chance encounters that often changes the shape of history, Feldon Bark, the executive secretary and guiding light of the PKMC, just happened to be driving past Miss Eleanor Hempel's little house at the moment she was greeting the Omegasites who stood on her front porch. Feldon Bark immediately surmised that a giant, plain brown wrapper pornographic mailing was about to take place, and it was just as if an act of war had been declared. He flicked on his CB radio. Mayday! 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 This is Clean Daddy! All members of PKMC, this is war! Twenty-seven Omega sites being welcomed to planet Earth by Miss Eleanor Hempel on the front porch of her little home with the big fence, and just when it seems everything's fine, Feldon Bark sees them, thinks they're mailboxes, and in effect declares war. I mean. 
Think of it, ladies and gentlemen. Think of it. Later on, Feldenbach was asked what exactly had happened. And this is what he said. <clears throat> now, whatever I did was done to protect all our people, young and old alike, from the dirty dangers which lie inside plain brown wrappers. Now, in my view, if a man hasn't the guts to put a return address on his mail, he deserves whatever happens to him. I ask this court to reverse its judgment, since all I did was try to make certain that certain vile people who were using the fine United States mail for the purpose of seducing the American people, young and old alike, would not do so anymore. Well, that gives you an idea of the sort of man Feldenbach was. You recall what he did when he saw the Omega sites. Mayday! Mayday! This is Clean Daddy. Now hear this. An unidentified moving van license number COO784, this state, bearing on either side signs reading Curb Your Dog, is preparing to load 50 to 100 mailboxes, each crammed to the gunwales with filthy plain brown wrappers. This moving van must be stopped. Repeat, this moving van must be stopped. This is Clean Daddy, over. One by one, each member of the Patriots to keep the mails clean responded. Since Feldenbach, in his excitement, had neglected to give his location, it took a little bit of time before the members of the PKMC reconnoitered. And by then, Ned Bummer had reloaded the Omega sites, and they were on their way up to Green Bank. The expedition's leader, Norman R. Zolli, sat up front with Ned Bummer, while the other Omega sites gathered in the back of the van. Miss Temple is a charming young lady. Oh, thank you. She's agreed to be my wife. Oh, how nice. Uh, where are we going? You'll see. I have a surprise for you. Will it hurt? No, 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 of course not. Those times are over. And I must apologize for the way you and your cohorts were mistreated. Yes. Well, where are we now? This is a place where I spent many happy hours when I was a child. <laughs> Very often here on Earth, when the pressure builds up, a man needs a place to be alone. In my particular line of work, which is the maintenance and repair of computers, those pressures often become intolerable. This restful haven has saved me more than I can say. Uh, what did you do here? I recharge my batteries. Here? Oh, I, I don't mean that literally, of course. Oh, of course. <laughs> That was the first time Ned Bar heard that high whining sound with which we've become so familiar. On hearing it today, a child will look up and wave pleasantly to the driver who will wave back. Today it's a common occurrence when these little scooters, as we call them, dash in and out of our atmosphere, darting and spinning, their eyelights flashing on and off. But in the old days, in the time of Ned Bummer's discoveries, these were frightening things for people to see. If you saw a flying saucer, as they were then called, you reported it to an Air Force headquarters where it was filed. That's what Ned Bummer saw at that moment. A small group of scooters, their red, blue, and yellow lights flickering on and off. As though they'd seen Ned and the Omega sites, they hovered above them, mother-heading them, so to speak. Keep your hands in your pockets. Don't speak. Don't look at them. And don't look. Yes, right. We're just fine, thank you. No cause for alarm, not at all. Ned Bummer wrote of that experience just after it occurred. And I quote, Seen from directly below, each object 
formed a circle a bit longer than it was wide. Its underparts were covered by a substance resembling metallic fur. The lights were not flashing on and off, but were opening and closing as though they were eyes. One blue, one red, and the third yellow. Our treatment has been just splendid. Nothing to cause any concern has happened to us. This gentleman beside me is Ned Bummer, and he's largely responsible for our safety and our feelings of trust and confidence. May I take my hands out of my pockets now? Oh, yes, of course. I, I didn't know if you'd ever met a scooter before. We don't like to take chances. Under stress, the driver has difficulty controlling it. You earth people, you're always pointing at things. It terrifies the scooters. Every one of you pointing at them all the time. I must confess we've treated them very badly, pointing and so on. Yes, you have. After all, they're only doing what they've been assigned to do. They guard you, is that it? Well, they make certain we're all right. They had our eyes on us before you found us. They knew exactly where we were. But Norma K. Vicky told me you were lost. <laughs> Norma K. Vicky is a worrywart. She assumed we were lost because she didn't know where we were. We knew where we were, so we weren't lost. We didn't know where each other were was the problem. Yes, I see. Well, I think it's time to continue our journey. Uh, shall we get back in the van? <laughs> The 27 Omega Sides clambered back into the van, and they continued their journey to Green Bank. Ned Bummer felt perfectly safe, for he knew the members of the day crew were finished and had left the complex. And sure enough, the great Green Bank parking lot was entirely empty. As he parked the van, Ned realized that the scooters were hovering above them, highlights blinking watchfully. But what Ned Bummer didn't know was that Felden Bark and his men had picked up the trail and were right behind them. But let us hear the recorded testimony of Lieutenant General Cyrus Miller. General Miller, poor soul, is the only one who's left us any inkling of what has come to be known as the affair in the Green Bank parking lot. This tape was recorded at General Miller's court-martial. Roll tape, Hal. I say it again, gentlemen. It was a war in which corner mailboxes tried to swallow men with plain brown wrappers flying from the radio antennas of their automobiles while several flying saucers hovered directly over the field, perhaps acting as airborne observers. I witnessed the battle from my office. The northernmost window looks down on the parking lot where the war was fought. Believe me, gentlemen, it was a war in which corner mailboxes tried to swallow men with plain brown wrappers flying from their radio antennas. Poor soul died in disgrace, penniless and unloved. A tragic footnote in history. And now Hal has Ned Bummer ready to speak to us again. Come in, Ned Bummer. Come in, Ned Bummer. Uh, Ned Bummer here. Uh, hello, Earth. I know the change in your voice, Ned. Uh, well, sir, as we go backward, we pick up speed. By Earth reckoning, I'm now just past my tenth birthday. However... I am determined to finish this work before my ninth birthday, which will be sometime last week by your reckoning. Mrs. Bummer is waving, Ned. Hang in there, old girl. While it's true that you're 75 going on 76, while I'm 10 going on 9, we'll work it out. You'll see. Just hang in there for your Ned. We'll have our honeymoon yet. She's waving, Ned. And I think a teardrop or two has fallen. The hand, folks, for Ned Bummer. Thank you, Ned. Thank you.
And now, in a moment, the exciting conclusion to what happened to Ned Bummer and Feldenbark and the Omega Sites. Andy Griffith again, and here's the fourth act of Our Man on Omega. Well, as you've heard, Feldenbark and his cohorts left the Green Bay parking lot with their tails between their legs. Ned led the Omega Sites into the building and was about to put them on television so that Norma K. Vicky could see that they were alive and well when Lieutenant General Miller interjected his presence. Red alert! Red alert! Invasion of foreign forces from somewhere else! Man the tanks! Armored cars! Get go weapons! Charge! Ned and the Omega Sites could do nothing but run for their very lives! They escaped the building, piled pell-mell into the van, and roared away! Ahead of them, Feldenbark and his cohorts frantically drove, while behind them came a portion of the United States Army. The scooters are following us. Uh, Mr. Bummer? Yes? We'd be honored if you'd come with us and meet the folks in Omega and elsewhere in the universe. We desperately need new blood. I'm to be married very soon. Oh, we wouldn't stand in your way. May I consider your offer? Please do. It's our opinion the new blood you'd add would revive and refresh Omega. You're very kind. Oh, not at all. By a clever ruse, Ned Bummer escaped the slow-moving United States Army and drove directly to Miss Eleanor Hempel's little white house. And there, with only the Omega sites in attendance, they were married by a civil servant sworn to secrecy. While this was going on, Feldenbar called a meeting of the PKMC. And this is a transcription of what he said. Mr. Chairman, fellow members of the PKMC, I want to first thank each and every one of you for dropping whatever you were doing to attend this emergency meeting. Now listen good. A gigantic plot to flood the mails of the United States of America with plain brown wrappers has been uncovered by yours truly and a few associates. Now, what these foul people who instigated this plot have done is rigged these mailboxes, we counted 27 of them, so that they are self-propelled and they bite. I can tell that many of you gathered here at this special meeting are saying to yourselves that old felon has flipped his lid, etc. Not so, my friends. Those mailboxes bite. They bit Thomas Buddy Green on his right forearm so hard they made a dent in his favorite leather jacket, which can never be eradicated. Therefore, we are going after them. And if you're threatened, fight fire with fire. Bite back. In order for you to do that, I want every man here who has a bridge or false teeth to step out of line and deposit said items on the table over there. All right, now, let's get those dirty, filthy, plain brown rapper deviants. Eldon Bark led his men back to the spot where he'd first seen the Omega Sites, Miss Eleanor Hempel's little white house. And they got there just as the wedding party was breaking up. Imagine... As Feldenbach rounded the corner, the front door opened and out stepped the Omega sites. Mayday! Mayday! Clean Daddy here! My goodness, what's going on? They don't drive very well. Look, the scooters! Uh, they're warning us. Look there! Ned, dear, those are army tanks coming this way. We must leave now immediately. There is no time to lose. It was a scene from Bedlam. The army approaching from one direction, Feldenbach and his men from another, while the scooters hovered above it all, eye lights blinking in a frenzy. 
The scooters will land and take us aboard now. Mr. Bummer, you will ride with Spot. I will join Rover. Prince and Fido will stay here to guard Mrs. Bummer. But I... There's a good girl. But I... You've been a brick, Mrs. Bummer. I knew you'd understand. I'll be back, my darling. I'll be back. Be a good little girl. I'll be back and we'll have our honeymoon. Now, just a block away from where Miss Eleanor Hempel lived was a small branch post office. And outside it, and on the four street corners adjoining it, stood corner mailboxes. What happened then, to the shame of many, was that Feldenbach's men, eager for battle, their teeth safely left behind, attacked these mailboxes, while the Omega Sites boarded the scooters, Spot and Rover, and Lady and the others. Goodbye, old girl. It's only a little business trip. I'll be back before you know it, and we'll have our honeymoon. Bite them! Don't just stand there, I'll say bite them! Ouch! Men, escort this young lady to a home, since she appears to be having trouble with her moving van. Then arrest those men for attempting to deface United States government mailboxes by biting with their teeth and gums. And that's exactly what happened. Ned, can you hear me? Miss Hempel is beside me now, and we've a treat in store for you. Now, Mrs. Ned Bummer would like to say a word. Ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Ned Bummer. Thank you, sir. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If my husband, Ned Bummer, were standing here by my side, he would know how to thank you properly. Alas, I was never one to make public speeches the way Mr. Bummer did. Now Hal has been trying to reach Ned Bummer for our big surprise. Ned, can you hear me? Is that you, Ned? This is Norman R. Zolly, Earth. Oh, Mr. Zolly. Good evening, sir. Is Ned Bummer available? His wife is here with us at this grand celebration we're having in honor of Ned. Oh, well, he's taking his nap just now, sir, and he's cranky if awakened. Are we talking about Ned Bummer, sir? Yes, he refused our advice and continued work until he reached the infant stage. But, sir, Mrs. Bummer is here, and this sweet little old lady has been waiting 52 years for her honeymoon. Oh, well, don't concern yourself, Mrs. Bummer. We're going to reverse ourselves within the hour and go forward again. Well, this little setback won't disturb anything, will it? Not at all. By my calculations, the scooters have arrived to escort Mrs. Bummer to her husband. It will first take her to a backward-moving planet. You mean... Exactly, sir. Ned Bummer will grow older while Mrs. Bummer grows younger. And when they've each reached the Earth age on the day of Ned's departure, they'll be joined together and have their honeymoon as planned, just as though those Earth years had never occurred. Thank you, Mr. Zolly. Mrs. Bummer has been getting into the scooter, even as we spoke. Farewell, dear lady. Farewell. Our thoughts go with you.
the Mutual Radio Theater is brought to you five nights a week at this time. Tonight's original radio play, Our Man on Omega, was written, produced, and directed by Elliot Lewis. Your host was Andy Griffin. Our star was Richard Crenna. Featured in the cast were Linda K. Henning, Jesse White, Sandra Gould, Lou Horn, William Woodson, and Brian Miller. The Mutual Radio Theater theme was composed by Nelson Riddle. John Harlan speaking. The Elliott Lewis production of Mutual Radio Theater is a presentation of CVI. This is Vincent Price. Join us tomorrow. I'll have another story to astonish and mystify you. Now, you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama. In which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee feed. There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic and live radio drama. So, yeah, either the main mutual audio network feed for all types and genres of audio drama or the Monday Matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen and imagine together.